0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And as we do each week, we take our questions uh, for the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and I'll be dropping a few links into the chat, first of which is our SMIEconsulting.org slash subscribe website, where you can see uh, both subscribe to uh, the newsletter uh, so that you get it in your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, or uh, you can also get it through LinkedIn if you prefer to get your news that way. But on the website, you can subscribe to it by cl- uh, scrolling down and clicking on the subscribe button uh, for, that, uh, for, the, for the newsletter. And for those that like it on LinkedIn, uh, you get that somewhere between 8.30 and 9 every Monday as well, Eastern time. So uh, what we do is we look at that, take those news stories, which are a combination of social media and international ed news stories, and we distill those down to three questions that we see kind of rising up each week as kind of common themes and answer those questions, go a little bit more in depth. You get our hot takes in the newsletter on Monday, and then on Wednesday afternoon, we go a little bit more deep more in depth into these three topics so that uh, we can provide some clarity and perhaps some uh, some uh, useful tips on how to proceed as you develop your own international education strategies at your institutions. So appreciate everybody who's tuning in live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or LinkedIn to watch this uh, live roundup uh, and also those who uh, subscribe to our audio-only podcast version of this roundup. Uh, on your favorite podcast platforms. So appreciate you making us a part of your weekly international edification. So uh, let's get right into our first question of the day. And this is one of my favorite topics. And that is social media. How is your social media strategy maturing? And I say maturing for a few different reasons, and anyone who's been in international ed for a while, and anyone who's known me uh, in my career, both on as, as an institutional representative uh, before I joined Education USA, during my consulting uh, years, uh, after I left Education USA, before I uh, now have joined uh, UNLV, and my first full-time day. Uh, as a UNLV employee, as director of global recruitment and partnerships, started yesterday full-time, Had been half-time with them since May, and uh, been consulting with them for a year before that. But uh, it's an interesting challenge. Uh, The university has been very supportive of of me continuing my roundup and my newsletter, so that will be a priority for me uh, to uh, keep my profession in, in engaged in what we're doing, uh, what we have to share in terms of our thoughts on some of these core issues of our day. And ways that uh, ways that we can be leveraging these types of things to improve how we do international ed on our campuses and beyond. And I know we have uh, Education USA advisors, guidance counselors overseas, other university uh, representatives from overseas who uh, follow the roundup either live or on repeat, uh, or subscribe to the podcast to get the content. Uh, and I appreciate your, your being a part of this journey too, because uh, it that one of my most important. Principles in international enrollment management is in not only being strategic, but is is being uh, having having your pro- your plan be infused by perspective, the appropriate amount of perspective, and uh, that perspective comes from the world and the world around us, and knowing the differences in different countries and how those how different uh, student groups use different platforms to reach uh, to find out information about. The things that are important to them, whether it be college, uh, whether it be career paths, whether it be income possibilities in careers, uh, whatever it is, uh, all of these matter. And the first topic here: How is your social media strategy maturing? Uh, social media has been an important part of all of our lives since it came about in the mid two thousands in the noughties. Uh, I realized early on, how when I was uh, a director of an international office uh, on campus for a U.S. college campus, is that. We were having difficulty at the time reaching our current student international students for different events and things that we were hosting, uh, that were helpful that were meant for them to help uh, prepare them for the next steps in their journey, whether CPT, OPT, uh, travel, whatever it might have been. Uh, and that uh, that uh, the realization came about to me before I had ever taken the plunge with social media. In about two thousand five six, I asked some of our current students. Nobody's responding to emails uh, for our different events. How should we be? Get, where, where can we find you? Where are you spending your time? Why aren't you responding to emails? And I said, well, we're all on social media now. We're all on Facebook or Twitter at the time or MySpace even back then. But that, that was something that was a light bulb for me. It's like, yeah, you have to reach students where they are and living where they live and having that perspective to understand that not everybody is going to be using the platforms you want them to use. So you have to know where they are and where, know where they spend that time. And essential in that is the first link I've dropped in the chat, uh, to specific to these topics, and that is uh, an ISEF monitor report—not uh, a report, but an article uh, entitled "Study Tracks Top Messaging Apps and Student Priorities in Key Asian Markets." And this is talk about live where your audience lives. This is the kind of data from Sonorbis, uh, one of the uh, one of the ed tech companies that's popped up in the last five or six years. Started in Australia, very heavily bo- focused on. Uh, opening up China to the Australian market and we're very successful in doing that, giving institutions in Australia an online footprint in China, locally hosted, on the platforms that Chinese students were on. Uh, so they've been very successful in that and they're now in the process of expanding their uh, digital presence for universities to include other social media channels across, uh, across East and South Asia. So this article is probably, and I I don't say this lightly, for those of you who are involved in social media and use it in your profession, you will want this article bookmarked. You will want to read it. You will want to share it with your colleagues up the chain in your institutions, uh, your web and social media coordinators at your institution, so that they have this and they can see some of this important trend data current data, topical data that actually <laughs> refers to uh, international student needs and uh, usage uh, and trends in Asia. And why is Asia important? Well, nearly three quarters of our international students in the United States come from Asia. And we disregard it and, uh, to our detriment. And we all, uh, some institutions focus on well, we got to move beyond China. Well, yeah, you do, but uh, beyond just China, not move beyond completely from China. That way, that's dangerous. But you certainly cannot ignore uh, and be successful in recruiting these students from these countries uh, that represent so many of the, so much of our international student population in the United States. You cannot ignore the platforms that they're currently using. You should, and, and it gets complicated. And gosh knows, I it, it's, it's not easy to keep track of all these things because they can change from month to month, from year to year. But just knowing where they spend their time, that for example, in Japan, uh, did you know that Line, one of the messaging apps out there, and Discord, one of the uh, community community groups uh, uh, that is usually attached to YouTube channels and other things like that that, is uh, kind of forums, community forums to, for various discussions. Line and Discord are the two most popular social media channels for students in Japan. I did not know that. I knew there were messaging apps that they were using, but not specifically Line. And totally blown away that Discord is that ranks that high in how students in Japan are getting their information and sharing. So thank you, John. Glad you're on board again uh, this week. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in. Uh, but this uh, article from uh, and the work that Synorbis has done in China uh, is, is now expanding to the rest of uh, East and South Asia, and we're, we're all better off for it, frankly, in my opinion, because uh, it does share. Uh, obviously, their expertise has been in China for years, and they they, cl- they clearly show WeChat as number one, Doyen, which is the, the parent company for TikTok, QQ, Baida, Tiba, I haven't heard of before. Baida, Baida that's one I need to look up. And Sinawebu, it uh, used to be Weibo, I think, but that's those are the ones that are most prominent in China. Uh, South Korea, Naver blog, Khao Talk and Discord. Uh, India, WhatsApp, Facebook, Telegram, Messenger. Uh, Thailand, Messenger, Line, and Discord. Singapore, Telegram, WhatsApp, Be Real. Be Real taking off in Singapore, that's interesting. Hong Kong, WhatsApp, Telegram, WeChat. Taiwan, Messenger, Line. Indonesia, Telegram, Facebook, and WhatsApp. So that, that's, the, that's the data from this article that uh, Sonorbus is sharing. What I really love about this is content, uh, the other piece of this article that I think is gold, is content design needs to match student priorities, and in terms of how you message to students in particular markets and how you, what value you put on certain parts of your messaging. Granted, I know most institutions won't get to this point or aren't at this point yet. Only the most sophisticated that have been doing it a while and have, have had a chance to really hone their messaging and be country specific beyond just, hey, we have students from your country in our, in our, at our institution, we have a student association, we have this, we have that, but actually con- uh, messaging, changing messaging to match what priorities are in those markets. And Sonorbus is also found uh, from their data data mining uh, in these same, re- same, same, same countries, China uh, school rankings, school and university rankings, teaching quality, safety, living environment, those are the, the top four things listed there. Japan, course availability, living environment, safety, cultural exploration, those are the things most important to that market. South Korea, teaching quality, course availability, costs and scholarships, safety. So this article goes through all of that. And I think if you read no other article about messaging and about social media specific to Asia this year, read this article. It is absolutely critical uh, to, if you're willing and able to go that next level with your messaging and how you target students in particular markets because it's absolutely fantastic and on point. And I say that with, with no small a sense of 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 the task that that involves for institutions, because knowing that many uh, many of you are and at institutions, you might be a single-person operation uh, office. Uh, you may be uh, have very limited support within a larger uh, admissions office. You might be responsible for just grad recruitment, international recruitment, and this is, and, or international is just one hat that you wear within your role. So I, I get it. I, you're not going Not everybody's going to be able to do these things. But if you have target markets that are in East and South Asia, and you want to be more effective in your marketing to them, to students in that, think about the kinds of posts you put out or can put out on these various platforms that will answer the kinds of questions that students are going to have. And this is something that I think that are that you're, where you're meeting them where they are, not only on the platforms that they're on, but with the content that's most important to them. When you can achieve both of those and have the kind of backup from, in terms of data and this and these kind of survey, uh, survey results and the work that Cenarbis has done to support what you're doing, you are really taking that next level step when you can do that. When you can meet them where they are on the right platforms and have the right content and messaging to answer their questions about the college search, preempting those kinds of questions. Uh, that they have. And when you think about that and how much more meaningful and targeted and personalized your content can be for your prospective student audiences, when you can get to that level, you're ta- you, 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 will, you will take your game to, the, to a whole new world in terms of what you're able to do for your institution. So this is this is the kind of piece that I, I have no, tr- no hesitation sharing because it includes some of the most um, relevant data points that we need to be on top of our game when we're recruiting in particular markets. Knowing where your students are, on what platforms they're spending their time, and what's most important to them. Mm-hmm. What do they need to know? You can do achieve those goals with uh, and have that knowledge at least to help guide and shape you. At least in, try it in a couple different markets. See if it impacts you. Uh, try just your standard messaging, and then try some uh, kind of A and B testing in terms of what messages will resonate most. Will get the most response back from your audiences. To that end, I've also included uh, a new new article from our team, our friends at Intet. Uh, a great uh, source of uh, data and, and, and strategies to be effective in recruiting uh, international students. This article is uh, talking about intent-ready leads uh, and how your messaging is, fits the, the kind of student leads you're getting from the different platforms you're on. So uh, that's a, just a supplemental piece, but the, for the main point of this, how is your social media strategy maturing? It's maturing when you can do those two things I just mentioned, be on the right platforms and have the right messaging for each audience that you're trying to target. So those are the that's the first question of the day and one that I always get exercised about because it's such an easy, nothing's really easy, but it's, it's so easy when you have the right data, when you have the right messaging that informs where you need to be spending your time. When you can do that and implement an effective strategy, then you are truly mature, maturing your social media game to a point where you can have expect much, much better return on your investment in that respect. So let's move on to our second question of the week. Does traditional career services work for international students? Great question, and one that uh, if I asked this question uh, five, six years ago, I probably would have gotten uh, an answer Yeah, sure, it works because they're just trying to help students find jobs, right? It's not, it's all the same. But the reality is, and increasingly uh, the reality is, that's not enough. it's not enough because uh, anyone who's worked in international uh, student scholar advising for any period of time knows that the process for international students to find jobs, find internships, uh, go through the regulatory process is very different than for a domestic student, it just is. Uh, when you think about the lead time for employment after graduation, that students who international students on F1 who are applying for OPT, the window of time that they have from um, they have to apply within uh, 30 days of their graduation dates for start date no later than 100 than 60 days after their 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 graduation date, uh, that they have a tight window when processing times are taking three months how do you manage that you have a very short window of time to get it absolutely spot on right so there that's just one piece of it just the fact that of getting the permission to be able to work you just take it take it back a few steps uh, you look at the job fairs that uh, they're on campus you look at uh, internships that students can get or not uh, on campus and how career services can help them adjust to that i think the This question of uh, does traditional career services work for international students? It's rhetorical. The answer is clearly no, because we've seen a variety of different factors impact the answer to this question over the last few years. One of those pandemic-induced, but even prior to the pandemic, the, the importance of outcomes of a student's education at your institution was becoming more and more important, not just for the students once they're on campus, and yeah, they're obviously looking and worrying about next steps and whether that's grad school or going back home or finding a job in the U.S. Whatever, the preparation they need is has is typically not the best, particularly when it comes to a career services office that is really only geared towards helping students find jobs in the U.S. and only primarily for uh, U.S. students. The article that I'm posting is from Vault uh, Edu. And it talks about, uh, it's a, an article that isn't, this isn't, the career services is not the theme of this article, but there's a, a quote in here from um, a colleague of mine from uh, Arizona State University, I have, I've known for years. Becky Conowitz, Dean of Undergrad Admissions at Santa Clara, is also uh, an old friend and um, uh, actually had a chance to be her coach in Academy 4 for NAFSA back in the day. But Becky's uh, Becky's gone on to to lead Santa Clara's uh, admissions efforts there, but she, she's talking about some of the background, some of the issues that uh, that uh, U.S. colleges have faced in the last five to ten years. But uh, I refer, to you, refer you to Chris Johnson uh, at uh, Arizona State's Director of uh, International Undergraduate Recruitment and Partnerships. Uh, in the article, he makes clear he's only at, he's only able to speak on behalf of his own private-owned consulting company that he has, uh, that his point is that perception does often dissuade students, even though the reality may be different, but perception for those students is reality when they don't have anything else to base their decisions on. But uh, the return on investment piece is something that he focuses on in the article, and that's why I wanted to really uh, start with this quote. The focus, this is from Chris, uh, the focus on return on investment has spread from the grad level to the undergrad level and folks are wanting really clear evidence of your outcome. Johnson explained, they don't want to hear just the aggregate placement rate, they want to know what the international placement rate is and ideally the placement rate for graduates from their country in their major. That's challenging because a lot of institutions just don't have the institutional wherewithal to collect and monitor that data. Spot on comment from Chris here and one that I, um, uh, every institution I've been consulting with, every every time I've had a conversation with colleagues about, hey, how are you handling this? How are you handling that? This is one of those areas that, yeah, we don't have that data yet. But the reality is you're going to need to get it if you want to be effective in convincing parents, particularly at the undergrad level, convincing parents to drop quarter million dollars or more on your institution over the next four years for their son or daughter to come and graduate and hopefully find a job and that's that's the data that you, you can and should be able to get if not and it just ha- if not this the sole data that you have uh that will give specific countries specific major uh data have overall international job placement rates for those that are looking and this is this is the important distinction here we we know in or in the U.S. It's from depending on the college for undergraduates moving on, anywhere from 20 to 40, per, 30% might be going on to grad school. Uh, another 30, 40% might be going into the uh, workplace right away. Another uh, 20, 30, 40% may be going home for from international student populations. So that's what that's that's the kind of data that we kind of know that's out there. So. So there are three potential areas of data that you need to, need to be tracking. One, find out how many, what percent are, are, who are graduating or going on to graduate study, further study, or transferring out to another institution, whatever it might be. You can get that fairly easy from SEVIS records. You can also get from SEVIS records how many of your students are applying for OPT. Uh, that should be relatively easy to collect each year. So that's the, uh, that's the point where you'll know how many have applied for OPT. And it will require some data mining. This is a perfect GA job to, to, to have to a research project to hand, give to an intern, perhaps, that can go in and data mine the SEVIS records to see, OK, well, here's, here's how many graduated this year and figure out a percentage of the graduating class. You can get that data fairly quickly. But then you need to also look at, OK, what kind of jobs are they getting? Uh, where the one thing you won't be able to get through the SEVIS data is salary data, and that's only going to be self-reported that Career Services is going to be able to track, maybe be able to track, and only through survey responses that they get from students. So the real challenge here will be uh, for institutions who are looking for the right, uh, trying to get that data, is, is looking where they're employed. Uh, where the students who have applied for OPT eventually get employment, and then maybe getting separate data for STEM data, STEM STEM students as well, to see where where they're employed as well. Having those data points mean can mean the difference. And the, when I see stu- when I see universities start to roll this out, I will pro- promote them from the rooftops here because having that data is next level stuff. Not everybody's able to do that yet. So, um, and it also goes to Career Services beyond just having the data. It also talks about, well, how are you helping prepare these international students for the internship fairs you're having for job interviews where they need to be able to ask the right questions about, hey, will you, does your company sponsor students for H-1Bs? Because if that's not an option, there's a major multinational corporation headquartered in my hometown here in Ohio that will not employ anyone who doesn't have permanent residency or citizenship. And as a result, no students ever get taken for, international students ever get taken for internships. No international graduates ever get taken on OPT at this company, this major multinational that's headquartered in my, my hometown. They don't do that and that's to their detriment because they, they, they only want to invest in interns that they invest in, student interns that they invest in that are in university. They want them to be able to continue all the way through. And it's almost like they don't think that they can get those international students through, because, yes, they can come on CPT. Yes, they can be on OPT for one to three years, depending on their major. And you can sponsor them for two, $3,000 for, for H-1B. Why wouldn't you want to make that investment if it's a talented, talented employee, potential employee? It just doesn't make sense. But knowing that, your career services office needs to help your current international students who are going to be looking for jobs navigate those waters. Because, say for example, you have an internship fair or a job fair on campus, and uh, if there are 100 employers there coming and only 20, maybe, would actually hire an international student, would it not be useful information to have that you can present to those international students? before they go into that fair and waste their time sp- speaking to 80 other companies that won't hire them before they get to the 20 that can. That's data, that's a way your career services office can and should be working with your international students. Working also with your international student and services office, scholar office, so that they can do sessions together on CPT and OPT and have forms and processes laid out that make it clear and available pathways for them to make, navigate these the very tricky waters. That's just the, That should be some of the most basic things that a career services office is able to do for your international students. Next level stuff is not only helping them in the job search in the United States, but having resources where they can connect them to resources back in their home country for jobs. You might have a robust alumni network. There are other um, services out there that help returning students uh, find jobs in their home countries. Are you doing that? Are you making those connections beyond maybe, here's the alumni office, go see them. Maybe they have a network you can get plugged into. And that's a whole other issue of international alumni networks at uh, at institutions and how well-tracked international students are after they graduate and become successful. Missed opportunities in most cases, as are the kinds of things Career Services Offices can and should be doing to help prepare their international students for the world after they graduate. So a lot of great stuff in here uh, from, uh, in terms of what you can do, and I love Chris's comments on the kind of data that you should be moving towards uh, getting and working with your career services office to provide for your prospective students. So it's just not just international students once they're enrolled need to know this. They want to know it before they get on campus. So there's a, again, it's all connecting the dots throughout that international student journey from prospective applicant. Uh, or inquiry to successful alumni. And every point in between, there needs to be some consistent messaging, there needs to be a unified approach on campus to making sure that every area that that student's gonna touch, we have a response that can help prepare them better for what they're gonna experience here. And we can sell the experience better to the students that are on the way in and to their parents. So that's question number two. Let's get to our last question of the day. What can we do to support English language programs? Now, this is one that we know during the pandemic, uh, English language programs have taken a beating. uh, Beating from uh, just the lack of being able to get international students into the country, which all of our institutions have, have been impacted by, the lack of students being able to get visas for English language study. Uh, as you know, they can't get uh, they can't get a conditional I-20 that's for English language and academic study. They can't get both of those uh, degree-seeking studies at the same time. It has to be one first, then the other. They can get a conditional admission letter, but they can't get an I-20 for both. That's been outlawed for the last six years. So uh, what can we do to support English language programs? Uh, one of the universities I've been consulting with uh, has... Uh, hemmed and hawed about whether or not they're going to uh, reinstate their English language institute that they had to close right before the pandemic. And that institution really has uh, struggled and uh, they've looked at some peer institutions in their state that have uh, really um, that have programs or have had programs. They survey them to find out what, what are they doing and what their struggles are. And I think what the clear and obvious uh, answer to that question is, it's not going to be easy. Because uh, enrollments have been down, there's challenges in hiring uh, directors and faculty, uh, and faculty that they hire are only going to be part-time. And how attractive is that going to be for uh, for an English language program? Uh, But I think there's uh, there's a lot. uh, There are a couple of advocacy groups, membership groups that are out there. Uh, one of which is English USA. Um, I've known Cheryl delk Dellegood for a number of years, back to my time with Education USA, and she's done uh, as uh, as executive director of Education of English USA, has done quite a bit to help galvanized support in both the campus-based international intensive English programs as well as third-party providers that are out there that institutions rely on to help funnel students to their campuses. Uh, She's come up with um, a series of five simple recommendations, uh, at least one of which has already been acted upon. So, uh, these five recommendations are things that I think uh, individual programs and institutions that want to support uh, their English language uh, programs on campus can and should do Uh, and this is uh, uh, some most of these recommendations are geared towards uh, government officials but the kinds of things that you should be aware of as you're advocating for uh, for English language programs on your campus. Uh, First up, inform consular affairs officers that attendance at English language programs is not in an in itself a reason for refusing a student visa application. So that's directed at the Bureau of Counselor Affairs within state. Uh, two, include language training student data in the SEVIS by the Numbers report from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and that has happened. As of the September 2022 SEVIS by the Numbers report, that language training is now included as a separate category in their uh, their sectional reporting. And I'll have more information on that in the coming months. I'll be doing a session about it at AirSea uh, as it specifically relates to, uh, to India, uh, but we'll, we'll definitely be able to dive deeper on that. Uh, three, report on entry exit over stay rates should include country and educational level data to help language training schools be aware of and strengthen their role in identifying fraudulent applicants. That's for Homeland Security. Four, provide financial resources for all states to be represented by the study state consortia and collaborate with the English USA to encourage English language programs to join. So that is uh, meant for commercial service uh, and Department of Commerce that run the educate USA uh, study destination and the network of state study consortium uh, that exist around the country. Uh, so that's an important one there. And the final, op one, final, final recommendation, permit limited opportunities for F1 students, including language training students, to earn money while studying in the United States. And that's important because currently um, uh, that language training students, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is kind of following the lead. And anyone, again, who has that global perspective and reads the newsletter that we send out, on mondays we will know that over the past few months there's been big debates in canada australia about work permission for international students off campus in canada in australia uk most other major destination markets international students when while they're enrolled in school have been able to work 20 hours a week off campus or on campus but um, primarily off campus and during the pandemic uh, in australia in particular there were certain uh, areas of the economy that were sh- uh, short-staffed, and international students had the, uh, the, n- the limit on the number of hours lifted to be able to fill those voids, uh, particularly in, uh, in the hospitality and service industry. So, uh, But that has been now revoked, now that, now that Australia has reopened and hopefully the economy is reopening there, that they are now back to the, just their 20 hours a week of off-campus work. Canada has gone the other way. Uh, they had been restricting to 20 hours off campus during the pandemic, but have now expanded that to 40 hours a week uh, to allow international students to be spending more time working than actually in class per week. So that's, that's, that's a big shift. Uh, what's uh, the, the fifth recommendation here from English USA is, it's, a lot, it's recommending that students have the ability to work off campus in the United States to help, again, in those same hospitality service industry roles that where they could earn more money potentially than they would at an on-campus job, allowing them that option to work off-campus. So I think that's really important and I, I certainly would get on board with that because that's, I think that's long overdue. It provides provo- uh, pr- produces some other challenges uh, in terms of monitoring and tracking, but certainly um, gets rid of those uncomfortable situations I've had as an international student uh, DSO or an RO uh, where I'd be eating off campus uh, at, a, uh, at a restaurant and I would see international students that I know should not be working at that restaurant either in the back or as waiters or waitresses. That That's an uncomfortable situation that anyone who's been a DSO knows and can, can attest to. That's not a, a situation you ever want to be find yourself in. So. Great recommendations from English USA on what we can do to support English language program and what the government, frankly, should be doing to to make them more a priority for our country. So that's all we have for you today on the midweek roundup. We really appreciate you being a part of the conversation today, and we look forward to chatting with you in the weeks and months to come. So have a great day, and we'll see you soon.